You're listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to author Michael Baskar. Whether or not our society and, if you like, our civilization above even any given society can generate big ideas is basically the most important thing for our future flourishing and survival. Michael shared his thoughts on how the history of humanity is characterized by big ideas, why the perceived stagnation of economic growth and technological progress may mark the end of breakthrough innovation, and what new tools might help us develop shocking, sensational, or paradigm-shifting new ways to see the world. Michael, your new book, Human Frontiers, is a big book about big ideas. But where did the idea for the book come from? I'm just interested in where radically new ideas come from. And I wanted to know, how is it that you can have some kind of revolutionary idea that is is very different from anything that people have thought or done before, and then realise it? So I started trying to work out, you know, what are the ingredients behind really big new ideas? Looking at that then led me into all of these questions about, well, are actually we really delivering on big ideas? Are, Mm. as a society, we speeding up or slowing down in terms of what we can do? And so I got kind of sidetracked from this great question of how do you have a radically new idea into this question of, well, how are we doing at generating those ideas? And what does that imply about the future? So for me, it started with that question, where do they come from? And then quickly moved into actually, how are we doing on that front? And I think, you know, most people assume we're doing quite well, but actually, you know, it turns out there's a lot of evidence we're not. Do you think we are at the end of the era of big ideas? Is everything that could affect us and society already been thought about, already been created, already been brought into the world? Or is there still opportunity for big ideas to find their way? There's a lot to unpack there, Luke. That that kind of gets to the fundamentals of, of everything. First, let's look at this question of whether or not we are really a society that can deliver big ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that I would say is people's common assumption. You only have to look at any kind of magazine or technology website and People assume that everything's speeding up, that we are just living in this time of extraordinary change and, you know, we're coming up with amazing ideas and isn't our science so advanced and technology is incredible. But actually, there's there's a whole kind of bunch of people who've really started calling that into question. And probably if you look at a period of, say, the last 50 years, they would argue that that period hasn't seen as many revolutionary changes as the preceding 50 years. So you say early time of the 20th century, the early half or perhaps part of the late 19th century, you know, you really had a, a lot of major transformations and you had them in the way we travel. You know, you, you mm-hmm. had the motor car, you had the aeroplane, you had it in science, you had everything from the gene being invented to Einstein's relativity. You had it in culture where you know you had modernism and you had the birth of cinema and all of these kind of things. Actually, when you compare a lot of those changes to the last 50 years, well, we've had digital technology and that's been this huge, massive thing, yes. But actually, once you take that out of the picture, there's been huge amounts of stasis across the board. Mm. So that led people to start questioning it. The core of 
the case would be that actually economic growth has been a lot slower since 1970. Why is that? If you are delivering lots of major new technologies, it would, on the face of it, imply that economic growth would actually speed up, and that didn't happen. And then within that economic growth, total factor productivity, the core measure of technology and how it impacts the world, well, that's slowed down a lot as well. Loads of other measures have slowed down. We're not creating new classes of patents any quicker, and that's how you Mm. would usually measure whether we're delivering a big new technology. And basically, whenever you zoom into an area, you can find these little worrying signs that we just haven't been delivering big new ideas. What has happened is we've kept producing stuff. More scientific papers are published every year. More patent applications are put in every year. But when you look at the things that are the real kind of paradigm-shifting events, when you look at the ideas that are the ones that most open up massive new spaces of endeavour, those we're perhaps not delivering on. There is a massive debate around this, and it's not as if it can be settled one way or another very easily. For a start, there's no commonly agreed metric for delivery of big ideas. Mm. People can debate this forever. What I think is definitely true, and I think what nobody can really deny, is that compared to where a lot of people thought our society might be in terms of this constant acceleration of ideas, well, that didn't happen. And there's not an uncomplicated picture of just accelerating away into the glorious future. Hmm. Actually, there are some indications of that in some technologies, but then there are an awful lot of signs of stagnation in terms of the biggest possible ideas. And that's this debate that's been going on. And I am always surprised that more people aren't engaged in it. You know, this is potentially the biggest debate around our times. All of the problems that we face will rest on our ability to have new ideas to overcome them. So whether or not our society and, if you like, our civilization above even any given society can generate big ideas is basically the most important thing for our future flourishing and survival. So if we are stagnating, that affects every human being on the planet, and it really affects the whole trajectory of the species. So it's pretty important, but actually (laughs) the stagnation debate tends to happen amongst a few cranky academics and fringe thinkers a lot of the time. And I I think there should be more of a debate about this. Where do you stand, Michael, on on the great stagnation debate? Would you consider yourself a stagnationist? I consider myself a sort of a, a half a stagnationist. When I started writing this book, Human Frontiers, I was going to just write it as a very pessimistic, full on stagnation argument and basically say, no, the last 50 years exhibits total stagnation. And actually, in the end, I, I just felt you couldn't support that. I think Mm. digital technology and all of its associated sub-technologies, they are the obvious exception and they are pretty massive and they do sprawl everywhere. You know, as one friend said to me when we were having this debate, it'll take quite a lot to convince me that Google Maps just isn't the greatest invention ever (laughs) in history. And, you know, I get that. Something like Google Maps or Spotify or even the fact that, you know, we're here in just completely different cities doing a podcast together are quite miraculous things. And they obviously don't fit any kind of simplistic idea of stagnation. So I didn't think you can just argue 100% for stagnation. 
However, when you start looking at the details, if you are to say, well, we live in this magical society, you just can't support that. There have been times in the past when paradigm shifting ideas were coming more broadly than they are now, with fewer people producing them. There is something that seems to have misfired quite majorly over the past 50 years. And it's even in something like philosophy. A lot of philosophers are starting to wonder, well, there are currently more philosophers alive on planet Earth than at any time in history. And they write more and they produce more and they teach more. But speak to philosophers about, are we coming up with any kind of big, brilliant new philosophical ideas? Who are the great thinkers of our age? And Almost without exception, philosophers will start to scratch their heads a bit and say, well, probably from the mid to late 20th century, these kind of great philosophers and these great philosophical projects started to go away Mm. and we haven't really replaced it. And it's like that in so many different areas. You know, we can make things better. We can make our cars faster or safer or more comfortable, but we haven't made flying cars. And so there's just this pattern that is everywhere. So in as much as I think you can look at any number of metrics and you can look at any number of fields and you can see that there is an issue with these ideas. But, and here's the crucial point, it's not the end of the story. So there are all of these massive forces that have been weighing down on our ideas and have been really pushing this stagnation. But there are also a lot of exciting things that could see us reaccelerate again. So now is a particularly important moment, I think, where there's just this collision of different things that could mean we're about to hit a really, really exciting upward trajectory again. But equally, the, the things that are pushing back are very considerable. It is an interesting time and it could go either way. Well, it does feel like part of the challenge is we we live in a society, we live in a culture that doesn't encourage new, big ideas. And you mentioned philosophy there, for example. I mean, a lot of the frustration with academia is the fact that academics have to be so referential to their sources. They have to look backwards at the great thinkers of the past to frame the arguments they're currently having in the present. They're not given the academic freedom to think wild and crazy new ideas within philosophy because they would be rejected by the institutions within which they work. So do we need to generate environments through which people have the sorts of freedoms to come up with these big, unfettered ideas that might also be wrong ideas, but at least they're trying them out in the wild? Just 100%, absolutely. And (laughs) universities are an interesting one. And Uh on paper, universities are the places that our society kind of sets aside for very high risk and interesting ideas to percolate and come through. But in fact, I mean, I've spoken to so many people over the years and for this book who are in universities. Nobody, almost nobody in the entire sector believes that is true anymore. Mm. Almost everything in universities is now a kind of game of scoring points to get a job, to get more grants, to get tenure. And the way you play that game is that you get citations, you say the right things, you write the right papers for the right journal that gets published at the right time, that'll get you that interview that gets you over the line. There's a great line from Lee Smolin, a physicist, and he says, it's a cliche to ask whether Einstein would get a job at a modern university. Of course he wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he was a patent clerk just scribbling away. Universities today are 
very credentialized places. You have to go through all of the correct channels. If you want to spend 20 years working on some kind of wild and wacky idea like Max Planck, the physicist, or that philosopher like Derek Parfit, mm-hmm. you can't do that apart from perhaps if you're in one or two nice seats at one or two nice universities. In general, universities need people to be churning out more narrow papers and going for more grants. Even the grant makers and the universities are aware of this. Everyone in academia hates this. Nobody thinks that this whole sort of complex system is in any way good for ideas, Mm. but nobody seems to be able to overcome it. And This is why I think a lot of these social pressures that weigh against big ideas are so difficult to overcome because they're very systemic. They're not really the kind of thing that you can just roll back. So uh, another example would be almost all of our funding systems and our businesses and our universities are incredibly short-termist. Businesses are looking at the next quarterly results. Startups, they're not reporting like that. They need to get a press release for their investors. Universities are looking for next year's rankings. What that doesn't recognize is that big ideas percolate away for decades, potentially. It takes an awful long time, and and you might have very little to show for it. So this obsession with short-termism really weighs. And it's all very well saying, right, well, we just need to take a longer-term view. Fair enough. But how? How are you going to kind of systemically create a more long-term framework across institutions, across organizations? It's just not the kind of thing that any individual could ever grapple with. And so it's very entrenched. And you know, one of the things that I argue really is that the forces that are weighing down in, in this societal sense, there are a lot of them. If you're the US government or the Chinese government or the EU, even you are not just able to click your fingers and overcome these sort of problems. So it is very intractable. There are things that I think universities could do, but there's a lot to do. Well, you call this problem the ideas paradox. So Michael, what is the ideas paradox and how does it create a burden of knowledge and and things like paradigm rigidity? How did we end up in this situation where we're in a ideas paradox? If you accept that our society is stagnating in a bunch of different ways and you know we aren't doing as well as we should, why is that the case? Mm. So one, you can say, well, there are all of these social factors, like the fact that we're too short-termist, like the fact that our universities have become over-bureaucratized and essentially suffocate the most high-risk work. And that's one kind of collection of factors. But then the other factors, I think, are basically baked into the raw history of ideas. And and it goes like this. The more ideas that you've had in the past, the more pressure that puts on ideas in future. Mm. And there are loads of different mechanisms that work in this way. So one is just the idea of picking the low-hanging fruit. Once you have had an idea for a car or a new artistic genre or the fact that the Earth orbits the sun, well, barring a kind of major catastrophe, that knowledge and that idea is there. It's in place. Mm. You can add another wheel to the car or something, but you've not literally reinvented the car. Um, You've not reinvented the wheel. You've just added another one. So this is controversial because a lot of people feel that 
surely it always felt like the low-hanging fruit was picked. Mm. And I think, yes, it probably did. But what it actually means is that ideas are always going to get harder unless you have new tools in order to make them work. But there is just this sense that because history works in one direction, a lot of the ideas will have happened. We do have this remarkably complete description of the universe. Mm. There are gaps, there are major gaps. But it's quite insane that, you know, we have a description of the universe that goes back to a tiny, tiny fraction of the second after the Big Bang. We have an understanding that can talk about that, that yet can also talk about the way the human brain works, the way language works, that can explain our history. So, you know, a lot of the big gaps have already been filled in. And that just means the scope for major new ideas is probably less now than it was 100 years ago. And again, like that's not this universally accepted position. But I think it does have an impact. But there are ways that I think almost everyone could agree that ideas work in this paradoxical way of getting harder. Mm. So you mentioned the burden of knowledge. I think it can be really well illustrated by the fact that the person Harvard University is named after left the university a few hundred books. And that was enough to get your name on the institution back in the 17th century. Today, Harvard University Library has 20 million books. Yeah. So there's just an explosion in knowledge. And in almost any field, there's now just far, far, far more to know than ever before. If you want to get to the frontier of material science, the amount of work you have to do to get there is just so much more. And the space for you to operate at the frontier is really narrow. You know, everyone has to specialize down. So there's just this burden of knowledge that makes having a big idea much more difficult. Mm. I think there's also a psychological aspect to this. And a lot of the time I'm looking for these very quantitative measures, but part of it is subjective. Part of what a big idea is, is you just know it. It kind of hits you around the face and you think, wow. But actually that makes it more difficult to just constantly have big ideas. You know, we got used to living in an ever bigger universe. You know, talked a minute ago about the heliocentric theory of the solar system as as being this radical moment. And it was. Suddenly the Earth wasn't the centre of the universe, the sun was. Wow, that's pretty mind-blowing. And then you realise, well, actually we're in a galaxy and maybe it's got something like billions of stars, maybe 100 billion stars. Whoa, that's pretty even more mind-blowing. And then, well, we could be in a universe of hundreds of billions of galaxies, And then we could be in a multiverse of almost infinite different universes at any given moment. But actually, our wonder is not scaling up linearly there with the size of the universe. Every time we're just going, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Partly that is because we can't do anything with that knowledge. If, if we did conceptually live in some form of multiverse, I mean, how does that affect us on the ground when it comes to living death and taxes? Well, to the average person, mm-hmm. the fact that the Earth went round the sun, there wasn't much they could do with that, but it psychologically rocked them. And it was this huge displacement. And again, I, an idea like Darwinian evolution or the Freudian unconscious, these ideas rocked people. Another example that I use in the book is the premiere of Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, which is a work of modernist classical music. And when it premiered, there was a riot in the theatre because people were so shocked that you could produce a musical sound that is just so arresting to them. 
but nobody is rioting in theatres anymore. People are just sitting there and politely clapping. Nobody is, perhaps outside some sort of fringe religious places, is protesting about Darwinian evolution. It hasn't Mm. shocked anyone. So I guess what I'm saying is, to some extent, ideas might work like uh, happiness. And you know, there's this thing with happiness of the hedonic treadmill, where you get a new like computer or maybe a new partner, and at first it just seems amazing, but eventually you habituate and it's just normal. And I think we've just become used to ideas and technologies and almost everything along that spectrum just being absolutely incredible. And now we expect that. I grew up reading science fiction stories where fast and light travel and so on was normal. And now here I am. Why, why haven't we got fast and light travel? You know, what a pathetic, boring society we must be that we haven't created this. I just think psychologically it gets harder to deliver the shock of a big idea. With a book like this, Michael, are you fetishizing big ideas? Are you basically looking at the great man theory of history and going, why don't we have more eureka moments? Why don't we have these kind of big paradigm shifting points happening today in the 21st century? Is there really a desire for that? Or is it purely the fact that we're quite happy with how things are. Let's maintain the status quo because right now that's kind of working out for at least Western society. Luke, I'm really glad you asked me this because I've been expecting a lot of pushback on just this <laughs> point. And so far it hasn't come. And you, you know, that that worried me. I thought nobody's challenged me on this yet. Uh-huh. But I've had a lot of conversations with people and some people have made that point exactly. Why are you obsessed with big ideas? Big ideas are just as bad as they are good. You talk about big political ideas. Well, people like Chairman Mao had big political ideas and look where that led. A nuclear bomb is a big idea. Yeah. You know, Actually, a lot of big ideas just seem to do more harm than good. And yeah, as you say, there's this sort of, is it just some kind of really arrogant thing of wanting big ideas when actually often much more sort of humble, small-scale interventions can make just as much of a contribution. The world doesn't work just from these like grand leaps forward. Actually, incremental changes are really important and significant. So I think all of that is really fair enough. Big ideas are often about the accumulation of small ideas. Mm. An example I'd give of that is Darwin's natural selection. We think of one moment when he published on the origins of species, 1859, and right, bam, a big idea, a book. But actually, the idea of evolution and natural selection has a history dating back in some form or another hundreds Mm. of years. Darwin himself was in communication with hundreds of people about this. Somebody else discovered the same theory at the same time. It had loads of precursors. In his own life, it was a 40-year project of just painstaking labor that only gradually fell into place. There wasn't a eureka moment. It did just come about. And then even after he published it, it took decades of people fleshing out the theory, arguing for it, and so on. So what looks like a very singular, very crystalline big idea, even there, actually, it is much more like a concatenation of small ideas. So that is one of the first things I'd say is almost every big idea is actually possible to break down into small ideas. And it's only when you zoom out does it actually look sort of big. I think there are areas where big ideas are really important, you know, in science, in aesthetics. And then on the social front, I don't think a big idea has to be opposed to lots of small ideas. I think they can work together. 
But the last and most important thing I would say, and the core of the defence, is that I think we have really big problems facing us as a species. We are looking at so many different areas where we could be facing threats up to and including existential threats. And without big ideas, I simply don't see how we're going to meet them, to be honest. Is part of that, Michael, not realising a big idea when it's staring us in the face. When you were talking about Darwin there, I was thinking of Jesus. I mean, he had 12 disciples and it wasn't until thousands of years later did we realise Christianity was this big idea. I mean, we had to post-rationalise the narrative and with the Darwin example you gave, I mean, at the time it probably reached the scientific community, but it was through good storytelling, post-rationalisation, other scientists agreeing that eventually we looked at this moment in the past as a paradigm shifting moment, but the folks living as Darwin's peers may not have realized how big it was at the time because it was a, a small group of folks. Big ideas start off as small ideas in small subsets of communities and they bleed themselves through culture. And then we look back at them in the past and then we consider them to be big ideas only when we see how they've affected our life in the present and will affect our lives in the future. Well, yeah, I think that is a massive point. And in many ways, I think that can provide some comfort. If you accept a level of stagnation thesis, what you've just said should give us cause for optimism. Because actually, basically what it's saying is underneath the surface, a lot can be bubbling. Yeah, What looks like stagnation actually might just be the tectonic plates moving and it's about to explode. I've got a, an example that I use for that, which is hopefully not one that people would really think of, but it's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights at the UN. Yeah. And that was the moment really when the idea of human rights was given purchase at an international level. It was really quite a shocking event in that it happened very soon after the Second World War. And so if you'd ask people in, say, the 1940s, can you imagine that in a couple of years, the nations of the world are going to come together to formally declare that there are these things, human rights, and actually outline them in great detail? And they're going to be mm. things that aren't just about basic personal security, but, you know, education and so on. I think people would have been amazed. <laughs> but actually, the, the sort of the story of human rights goes back several hundred years. And there was a lot of work, a lot of intellectuals talking about it, political activists pushing it. And they had some moments of success, like in, say, the American Revolution. But actually, most of the time, it was fairly niche discussion. And it was only then at the beginning of the 20th century, did people start to actually put in place real policies that would reflect what we now know as human rights. But then you've got two world wars, you've got a Great Depression. It seems like it's going to be miles from the agenda. In the middle of World War II, it just seems absolutely fantastical that, that anything would ever happen. But then, boom, suddenly, post-war, you have just this extraordinary window and, and Eleanor Roosevelt pushes it through the UN. And, you know, I think the lesson there is you can have 200 years where it looks like nothing's going to change. And then in a couple of years, everything changes. But the question there also is, I mean, would human rights have ever have happened without the Holocaust? Do you need these atrocious events, these atrocious ideas to then have the equal and opposite reaction, which is these wonderfully egalitarian ideas. I mean, really, the, the way in which the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was conceived was in reaction to something 
utterly atrocious like the Holocaust, would we have never have considered it otherwise? I think in that case, the sheer horror of what happened definitely added a huge spur to it. Mm. But what I would say as a sort of broader point, though, is that ideas can both work on very long, deep timescales, but then sort of sudden events can ignite them. So it need not be something like so awful. You know, it could just be a thinker, a tinkerer just spends 30 years working on something and then actually finally is ready to publish the paper. And then, you know, that might revolutionize a field, but actually it's something that's been brewing for a long, long time. As you sort of said, the point about Jesus is only in hindsight that you can really piece together what's going on. And so it could be that in 30 years' time, people will say, well, on many metrics, there was stagnation, but on these few, there wasn't. And then in the 2020s, 2030s, these things kind of exploded into life quicker than most people had ever imagined was possible. And then it transformed so much. So that's the lesson that I take, is that ideas are both very deeply caused, but also very sort of dependent on tiny little circumstances. And you just need everything to come together, and then it can just explode seemingly out of nowhere, but actually not. It does feel like some of these big ideas, they need big catalysts. They need certain things to occur, which will give the libidinal energy to make those ideas realized in the world. And and one of the things that especially in the West, humanity seems to be obsessed with is this idea of collapse or the idea of extinction or the idea of destruction. I mean, we're having a lot of discussions on the podcast at the moment with folks looking at existential risk and all the things that could potentially cause the end of humanity. And and it does feel like a lot of those folks are arguing for this possibility in order to force us to have these big ideas about how we might change society. So do we need perhaps a form of collapse for new ideas to emerge? Or do you think new ideas can emerge during a period of seeming slowdown? I think they can and must. <laughs> Let's hope they can. <laughs> yeah, they, they must show up in a period of seeming slowdown. What I'm also 100% sure of is that in the event of the sort of collapse scenario, then that's it, it's game over, because we simply won't be able to have any new ideas. We're at a point in the history of ideas where ideas are so complex and advanced that individuals alone can't really do anything. It's all about teams. It's all about large institutions. It's all about multi-year, multi-team efforts. Essentially, getting to and staying at the frontier of human endeavor now is a massively difficult task that requires a huge support infrastructure, a huge total societal level infrastructure. So unless you have these really incredible institutions working on the frontiers, you simply aren't going to be able to push them back anymore. Mm. So it's quite clear to me that in the event of any kind of collapse scenario, it's too late. We have to do all of the thinking before that happens, basically. Hearing you say that, it certainly feels like there's something that's baked into the concept of big ideas. And that thing that's baked in is the idea of progress. The fact that a big idea will always lead to some form of growth. And especially in the West, we're fetishizing the idea of exponential growth. Exponential growth of capital and investment in technology will unlock markets and allow them to grow ad infinitum 
momentum. And we're beginning to realize that the reality doesn't really match the Fugazi economics of some of these things. In a funny sort of way, exponential growth is really a myth that only works in the abstract. So is the big idea that we need realizing that growth, progress, and acceleration aren't always the directions we need to take ourselves into when it comes to thinking about the future. Perhaps the slowdown is the big idea that we need to allow humanity to survive the next couple of centuries. I personally don't believe that, but I would be open to that being the case. And essentially, there are a lot of thinkers who are arguing that. I just personally don't quite buy it, but I certainly think that if we could find a way to produce a stable degrowth economy, that would undoubtedly constitute one of the biggest ever ideas in economics and in social mm. organization. So that would be something exciting. I think it might be impossible. And actually, you know, the ideas in economics should be more about how we kind of build post-scarcity with technology rather than against it. But mm-hmm. you're definitely right that that kind of suite of ideas could constitute the next stage of big ideas. The one thing that I would just want to clarify for everyone is, I certainly do not believe that these collection of big ideas, i.e. the most impactful ideas of all, are uncomplicatedly good or associated innately with progress. Because they're not. Gunpowder is a big idea, but it's killed an awful lot of people over history. As I mentioned earlier, a nuclear weapon is a big idea. Arguably, fascism is a big idea. You know, big ideas can be good, they can be bad. They can have excellent consequences, they can have negative consequences. So there's not an uncomplicated picture. I guess what I'd say is that without them, we will struggle to overcome our problems. But it doesn't get us off the hook. In pursuing these ideas, it may just create new problems. So, you know, one of the actual big ideas that I think we most urgently need is ideas around how to deliver the next generation of ideas without catastrophic consequences. And people tend to think about AGI or synthetic biology in that <laughs> regard. You know, how can we make them safe? But one thing that I just haven't been able to get out of my head is that in the 19th century, you took one person working away in the British Library, Karl Marx, and he's just there and he goes to the British Library reading room. Well, his work, the work of one individual in one library, ended up impacting literally billions of people in the 20th century. So ideas in the social sciences can have just as much of an impact as technological ideas. And across the board, for all of them, there's, there's no real framework, there's no guideline. Anyone can just write a book, anyone can start developing a technology. And what we really need are ideas for how we stop the bad ideas and encourage the good ideas. And to date, there isn't really a framework for doing that. So that would be one of my major candidates. We need to come up with a system internationally for working this out, but it's an insanely hard problem. But part of that problem is that we kind of like the status quo. You know, and we're seeing that in science, and you you write about this in the book, how, you know, science was supposed to be this original and sceptical space, and now it's really turned into arrogant scientism. Science is basically buying into its own 
dogmas. And what made science great was that it engaged in catmas. <laughs> it engaged in sort of this post-truth, let's come up with some radical, wild ideas and, and let's test them to see if they are right or not. But the problem with that sort of unfettered research is that it doesn't work very well in the market of ideas. You don't get a lot of funding in the 21st century to do crazy, wild, out there future thinking that may not actually show any results or any consumable products. What can we do to encourage an environment that's less precautionary and, and more proactionary when it comes to idea making and thinking about the future? Actually, there's a lot that we can do, which is the good thing. There's a lot that can be done. It's just mm -hmm. quite difficult to make it happen. Just going to that point about how everything's more conservative, you know, I think that's a point that people might not just buy into immediately. But I think almost wherever you look, disciplines, whether that's a, a musical genre or a scientific discipline, they talk more to themselves. They are yeah. bigger than ever before. In order to get to the leading edge of that discipline, you have to be even more engaged with this whole world than you ever were. And I think it makes everyone just burrow deeper into their niche. And actually, there's a lot of talk about how oh, interdisciplinary stuff is the future. But in practice, it's almost always penalised. It never really works. Mm. People get good at what they do, and so they stay doing what they do, and fields feel like they know what they're doing. So, yeah, I think that is an important point, and it's something that's hard to perhaps just convey in a couple of seconds, but I really think it's a massive feature of the world today. So what can we do to break it, and how do we break these cycles and systems I've got a bunch of suggestions that I think would work for delivering lots of new ideas. The first is that I think we need to resurrect a kind of mission mentality. And this is something that is in the ether at the moment, and, and there have been a few books on it. But when you look at the 20th century, a lot of the most important ideas, especially in science and technology, came from these massive missions. Um, whether it was something like Bletchley Park or the Manhattan Project or the Apollo missions, they were vast government-backed enterprises with a very urgent goal that drew in a huge amount of collaboration from universities, from the private sector, from government, and they managed to deliver. And there was an urgency to them, and there was that necessity, but there was also an ability to spend eye-watering amounts of money on it, you know, truly, truly epic amounts of money in a very short space of time. You know, probably if you want to create an AGI or if you want to establish a settlement on Mars, it requires at least the Apollo missions, you know? It requires something like percentages of GDP, like whole percents. Mm. So, you know, I think we need to find some missions that will galvanize society. And then that is how you can deliver a big idea. And that doesn't mean necessarily creating some monolithic mission. Actually, you could create a mission that just is funding loads of different people in loads of different ways and all contributing. That's one method. I think we need to experiment way, way more with how we come up with ideas. And there are so many different ways you could do that. One idea, I think we just need a whole new set of prizes. I think the current prizes that we have just box things into a very old-fashioned mentality. I think we need totally different ways of giving grants. 
We should be funding people and just taking big risks on those people. We should be trying all different kinds of ways of deciding who gets money, even even down to lotteries. If you're just funding the people who the experts think are good all the time, well, that tends to be quite good for incremental progress, but it tends to be really bad for just disrupting everything. So just sometimes throw out a lottery. We just need to experiment across the board with how to come up with ideas and just actually run experiments this doesn't really happen. Mm. Even in here in 2021, people don't experiment rigorously with how do you invent a new genre of novel. You know, no one's really kind of sat down and looked at that and thought about it in great detail. They look at it in history a bit, but let's experiment more across the board, everywhere. I think we need to change education and have a way more radical education system that's going to change how people think. And then lastly, I think we need to, as I said, like have big ideas about how to generate good ideas, as in non-disastrous. And that's something we still don't know. Well, you tease in the book some of the places where big ideas might start coming from. You look at the historical examples and they're usually white men from the West, which is no uh, bad thing per se. I mean, it was just the cultural circumstances and the environment in which they lived, which gave them the freedom to go and do the things that they did to then discover those big ideas. But it it certainly feels like Western culture is no longer capable of generating big ideas due to the dominance of capitalism, due to its interrelated incentives such as shareholder return. But if we look East and we look at China and India, it feels like these are the places that are going to truly impact the future. Should we just accept that the 21st century is no longer the American century and it could very well be the Chinese century and China might be the place where the new big ideas will come from? To me, it's just completely uncontroversial that a generation of new ideas is coming from China. I just think that's just beyond doubt at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the point that I would make on this is that Actually, over history, the frontier has moved from societies. You know, there have been lots of times in the deep past when China has been the leading civilization on the planet and has had way more advanced technology and learning than Europe. And there were times when Arabic nations, the Islamic Caliphate was the most scientifically advanced civilization on earth. The point about history was that it was always only one given civilization at the leading edge at any one moment. What is so different about this moment now is that for the first time in history, you have multiple people, potentially the majority of the human race, converging at the frontier at the same time. And that is what is so different and so significant. It really is something that is unprecedented when you have potentially billions of people who have access to the internet and are getting educated and can potentially contribute to the field of ideas. We just really don't have a playbook on what that means for ideas because there is nothing like it that we've ever seen before. And it's only really probably in the past 10 years or so that we've started to see the actual impact from that. It was too early before. And yeah, China is making a massive difference. The truth is, people think of the rise of China as just this kind of geopolitical thing. Actually, just at the level of raw ideas, it's just this colossal shot in the arm. You know, China is spending more money on quantum computing than anyone else. It's building missions to the moon. It's built 500 Confucius Institutes. It's got its Thousand Talents program, the world's biggest kind of 
talent magnet. It's also, of course, got a very different model from the West. It's cracking down on free speech. It's cracking down on technology companies. It's not a free, open environment by any means. But all of this kind of means, I think, that it's going to have a different style of idea. I think it's going to be very good at realizing and producing ideas that people have already thought of. I think it's going to be less good at just coming up with them. But actually, what the West's been struggling with is, well, people have ideas like fusion power or a quantum computer, but then it takes decades to build them. Mm -hmm. So perhaps what China's doing is it's accelerating a lot of the bottlenecks that have been hit. And then, of course, you've got places like India, different to either the West or China. For me, the key thing is that for the first time, the entire world can build a new set of institutions that are about delivering ideas. And I just think that is an extraordinary thing. It's happening once, and it will only ever happen once, this transition from there being effectively one society to to the whole world at the frontier. And we're watching it now. And either it'll just hit the roadblocks hard and we won't really go anywhere, or this is the moment to move to just an entirely new level, a new kind of paradigm of paradigms. So it's a fascinating and important time from that perspective. To play devil's advocate, it certainly feels like capitalism is a great idea to ensure the interconnection of different nation states to make wartime unimaginable. But as you said previously, it's during wartime that we generate these massive missions to then put the funding into these big ideas to generate Apollo missions or Manhattan projects or whatever else it might be. In peacetime, that seems very difficult. And in peacetime, we spend more time preserving the current society and the operating system underlying that society, which is capitalism. And it feels like we can't create new ideas if the business incentives are against new radical forms of being. Business is really about iteration, not true innovation in this current environment. And if we can't shake that, we're never going to move into the sorts of futures that we've imagined through things like science fiction. When you look at the history of ideas, there is no doubt the single biggest spur to new ideas, not just technologies, but new forms of government, new forms of creative expression. The greatest single spur has been war. That is this just sort of crazy thing that always happens just because it is such a galvanizing force and it forces people to change. Hmm. But we just can't afford that anymore. So if there is major conflict now, the scale of it will just be so catastrophic that, to my mind, I would rather have stagnation than some kind of conflict without question. We have to break that link. That link is something that I don't think can credibly be considered, even though historically Mm. it's been very powerful. So we're left with peaceful forms of social organisation, thank God, hopefully. But as you say, there, there are problems. Now, I wouldn't be critical of capitalism totally in this idea sense, because actually it can be very, very powerful and generative. You know, mm-hmm. the competition of capitalism does produce a lot. What I would be very critical of, though, is an overly financialized oligarchic capitalism, which is in many ways the capitalism that we've ended up with. 
And that is incredibly conservative. It wants managed return. It talks about disruption. It doesn't actually like disruption. And so it's not that it's capitalism. It's the specific breed of capitalism that we've ended up with these diffuse structures of ownership that just want to return that actually just mean that a few big firms dominate year in, year out. That's what we need to address. It's just a major challenge to do that because this is a distributed system. It's not like anyone can switch it off. It's also not as if the problems are secret. I mean, Mm. they're known about and discussed all the time. I think the thing that probably isn't discussed enough, I think people think, well, oh, innovation works fine under our capitalist system. Actually, no, I don't think it does at all. Mm. When you start looking at how innovation occurs, it really is not well served by the current system. Businesses don't really invest in fundamental research. They just free ride off work that happens elsewhere. That we can start talking about more. We can start being more vocally critical of the innovation ecosystem that is out there. That was the wild revelation within your book that certain businesses, they, they're just building upon technologies that were developed with public money, whether it's the internet itself or GPS or you know all of these things were large government projects. And and the libertarians will go, no, no, get government out of the way. But in actual fact, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have the underlying technologies that gave us the internet and all of these social media platforms that we now have. But we glorify that form of innovation because it shows potentially massive financial returns if you know someone creates a Facebook or a Twitter or a PayPal. And what ends up happening is folks want to go work for those sorts of companies and they're communication companies for, for want of a better word. They're not companies fundamentally transforming the world, even though their press releases may say they are. And we're in a situation where the greatest minds of our generation are working for social media companies that spend all their time developing algorithms to better sell advertising, to justify their inflated valuations on the market. And those sorts of folks could be so much better placed working on the fundamental problems that are genuinely affecting society. And again, it's where I think perhaps China and India's got it right over the West. Like they're educating their kids to do physics degrees, to do STEM uh, opportunities, and they're incentivizing those sorts of individuals to go into those sorts of industries to then progress their nation state. Whereas in the US and in the UK and in Europe, for example, we glorify social media influencers because they have an ability to make millions of dollars by posting stupid little images of themselves. And we're stupefying our society in the West, whilst in the East, they're working out how to galvanize certain forms of intelligence to generate the certain futures that they would want to see. And their futures are 10 years out. Whereas in the West, because of our political system, they're four years out at best. (laughs) You know, we can't do long-term thinking, especially in the UK. If you have a vision for the future of Britain, you're dismissed immediately as either racist or nationalist. You can't do that. Whereas China, they have a 10-year vision for their country and they can do that. They have a 50 to 100-year vision that they are operating on and delivering on. And they're playing it out. There's the joke that they were always going to expose themselves a little bit to Western capitalism, allow for that growth imperative to hit the Chinese 
tech companies. And then as we're seeing with things like Alibaba and the disappearance of Jack Ma, I mean, they're coming in and they're reclaiming that wealth and then reinvesting that wealth into the betterment of that nation. Obviously, there's certain social issues that are problematic around the outskirts, but it certainly does feel like a big idea about how to galvanize a billion people into creating a prosperous future. Whereas, I mean, even this week with the petrol crisis, I mean, in the UK and the US, we're just arguing with each other on social media as we slowly watch our countries decline. There's a lot to unpack there, Luke. Um, <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot going on. One, I, I admit, I think Britain has a lot of the pathologies against radical new thinking to an extreme yep. degree, even by the standards of the West. That is a shame. I think all of the sort of things that we've said about not investing in the right places in R and D, short termism, over bureaucratized universities, all of it is in the UK absolutely endemic and just sort of to an incredible degree. What I would say is that I think totally, perhaps the biggest issue of all is what you've described is essentially a misallocation of talent mm. on an absolutely incredible scale, whereby essentially we have the frontier of what human beings can do. And at the same time, we have more talent than has ever existed. But most of that talent isn't working at the frontier. Most of that talent is working on things that are basically irrelevant and pointless. Most of that talent is sitting, sending emails to each other every day that is in the grand scheme of things pointless. And yes, guilty as charged, me too, all of us. Now, I think in some ways, you're right. China has short-circuited this, and they are yeah. they are just putting together a vision that is going to deliver. And yeah, they've just decided, right, well, consumer tech, we don't care about that anymore. And the West is now saying, oh, look at China, it's backing away from tech. No, it's not. It's now just doubling down on deep tech and, and foundational technologies, whereas the West generates a new photo sharing app and thinks, oh, look how advanced we are. <laughs> I'm a bit critical of this idea that just churning out STEM graduates is going to be enough. You know, I actually think that the whole problem here, it's not just about science and technology, it's about a much wider mentality. The West has just become complacent, but that is also about just listening to the same old genres of music or just only wanting to go and see the big franchise films. And I'm not so sure that what China's doing is going to kind of revolutionize that complacency. But again, there is a bigger world than just China and the West. China and the West are now pursuing different strategies. So you've introduced an element of competition that could be galvanizing in its own right. Mm. There's obviously just a lot going on. I mean, I think I broadly share your your feelings on it all. I would like to see Western companies put much more into basic research. Really, there's only a couple of technology companies are doing that. Mm. Everyone else is just developing pre-existing research. And that's not a healthy place to be. You mentioned briefly there the idea of culture. I mean, that's where we see stagnation. If you think about it, there was, I think it was 15 years between Beatles and punk. It does feel like there's nothing shockingly new in our culture. Everything sounds like Coldplay now, even though it feels like technology might be changing and iPhones might be getting smaller. In terms of what we're consuming on those iPhones, in terms of music and media, it's not really changed much. There's no real cultural rebellions. And if, even if there was a cultural rebellion, I don't even know what that would look like. It would 
probably have to occur offline. <laughs> you know, a, a cultural rebellion of the next generation wouldn't be on TikTok. And if it wasn't on TikTok, how would we even find out about it? So, you know, how does culture play into all of what you're talking about, about our underlying uncomfortability with the future of, of big ideas? Luke, I, I think that is just a brilliant summary of the whole question. You know, you, you've nailed it, basically. Um, I don't understand why people don't talk about this more. Yeah. You kind of mentioned, yeah, it was 15 years from the Beatles to punk. 15 years before the Beatles, it was kind of Vera Lynn style, almost musical, maybe a bit of the blues. After punk, you then almost, you know, at the same time, you had the birth of hip hop, you had the birth of electronic music. It was almost every 20 years in the 20th century, you'd have not only a sort of a, a complete transformation of what you'd be listening to, but that would come with changes in fashion, changes in aesthetics, changes in attitude. There was just this cycle of rebellion, and it all seems to have ground to a halt. As you say, just in terms of fashion, in terms of music, there are slight evolutions, but we haven't had a major sort of generic revolution in at least 20 or 30 years. And basically in every creative form that holds. It is an extraordinary fact. I think it can partly be explained just by this idea of the idea paradox that we talked about earlier. Once you've had this major moment of cultural rebellion, well, you can keep doing it, but it's never the same as the first time. The big idea of a cultural rebellion has happened. And it's also just probably true that there just aren't infinite genres of music that you can create that would be interesting to human beings. There are infinite ways of making music, fine. But there aren't infinite stylistically interesting ways of making music, or at least I don't think so. So I think we've probably used up more of the menu than perhaps we might think, musically speaking. And now the basic structure's in place and it's just elaborating within that, perhaps. There are so many different reasons. I think this is just something that's really powerful. And it's just the way that this cultural stagnation then rhymes with various other economic or technological scientific forms. And it's not that we can't do new things. We're fine. You know, we produce more music every day than at any point in history. It's just that we don't seem to be able to have the album that just suddenly launches a totally new genre, an album that just stuns mm. society and is a paradigm shift in what people are listening to. It's that kind of thing that seems to be where the problem lies. I mean, it's part of the problem we're constantly sold that something's a new big idea. And I, th I think it's probably best captured in the idea of TED Talks. I mean, TED Talks are basically big ideas consumed, yeah, uh, but they're, they're really just disenchant us. You know, they're big ideas in 18 minutes. And God, if you see, you know, hundreds of hundreds of these big ideas, they all kind of merge into one bleh, noise. Yeah. You know, it's, none of them feel big if we're told all of these TED Talks are big ideas. It's just part of the ecosystem in which ideas exist and form. Or are consumed. It's, it's, it's not even about how they're formed, it's how they're consumed. Yeah, they are packaged as a yeah. consumer product. We've gone from having lecture series to just a 15-minute TED Talk that is great for YouTube. We've gone from writing long essays to just having a, a rant on Twitter. Mm. We've gone from intellectuals wanting to kind of be public figures writing books to either on the one hand, just wanting to be bestsellers and have a TED Talk and make lots of money on the lecture circuit, yeah. or going the other way and just borrowing super niche, just publish a few articles in a few papers. 
But whichever way you cut it, this ecosystem, the way in which ideas are produced and the way in which ideas are packaged, and they are always packaged, just mitigates against the big ones. It's either just this really disposable consumer phenomenon, or it's just a kind of very niche borrowed down. That middle layer where you used to be able to really push a great transformation has really fallen away. And people just don't seem to know how it's possible to operate there. The structures that used to support that have kind of fallen away. And whether that's through social media or whether it's through the structure of careers, it all just adds up. I wonder if the whole obsession with big ideas is really about an obsession with growth and whether a slowdown in growth actually means a slowdown in progress. Because on reading your book, it felt like, oh, perhaps we've confused the progress of humanity, human progress itself, with this idea of scientific and economic progress. Human progress doesn't necessarily need to be tied to economic growth and economic progress. In actual fact, separating the two might be the big idea. And you mentioned the Fermi paradox in the book. I had a wonderful reconceptualization of the Fermi paradox recently. The Fermi paradox, when it was originally conceived, was about why we're not in contact with aliens. And the conclusion that they came to using the Fermi paradox was, well, perhaps any technologically advanced civilization gets so technologically advanced that they destroy themselves before they become a space-faring species. I recently heard a beautiful reversal of the idea of the Fermi paradox, which was Perhaps the reason we haven't had contact with aliens is because aliens are so advanced that they realize that corporate extractive capitalism isn't a good model with which to run society. And therefore, they never had billionaires who never had the desire to go to space. And they stayed on their planet and they created a perfect ecosystem that would allow them to live comfortably and in community on their planet. And when you live comfortably in community and in relationship with the environment, you suddenly realize, hey, why the hell would you want to leave that? You know, and that is pure progress. You know, they realize that, you know, the desire isn't to go further and faster. The desire is to stay and create paradise on their own planet. So do you think we can disconnect this idea of human progress from this idea of economic progress? Should the thing we are focusing on collectively be about creating an environment in which we want to sustain ourselves? And that may be sort of antithetical to the idea of economic progress or to extractive ways of being. I would be incredibly open and pleased if we could <laughs> find a way of divorcing a sense of progress from economic growth. Yeah. I think that would be great. And I think the best candidate of that would be to essentially judge ourselves by the kind of ideas that we are producing. Mm. So I think for all of the amazing economic growth that we've had, I think even more significant is the body of scientific knowledge that we've built up about the universe. I think that as an achievement is even greater than anything we've done economically mm. for our species. So I think it would be much better if we started to judge ourselves by, well, you know, what scientific ideas we had? What technologies have we created? What artistic forms and philosophical ideas have we come up with? I think that would be way, way better. Where I would really disagree with you on is the idea that there's just some equilibrium that we can find where we stop trying to move forward. Mm. I don't think that is likely or possible. 
I don't think that's likely for any alien species either. I just think essentially you're always going to find problems. You know, even if you're an alien species, you need to find a way to deal with the once in a million year time that an asteroid is going to come and hit your planet mm. or when the supervolcanoes are going to erupt or when there's some huge gamma ray bust that just sweeps through your solar system. There isn't a sort of stable equilibrium where you're just in nice, happy harmony, where unless you are actually moving forward, you can deal with those. Fine. I, I think economic growth in many ways, the sooner we can find a model that delivers flourishing for the planet that is beyond economic growth, the better. But the idea that that's just a kind of happy state where we aren't pushing forward, I think that's wrong. I think we'll still find ways that we need to keep going because I think we'll always find new problems. And also that alien species, you know, what about if one of them just one day just decides, right, I'm angry. I'm going to kill all of the rest of the people on my planet. You know, how are the other people going to develop tools to stop that person, etc.? For me, economic growth, yeah, fine, let's get rid of it. But the idea that then we don't keep pushing forward on some measure, I, I think we have to. You recently interviewed uh, Thomas Moynihan, who wrote a wonderful book called X Risk, who talks about the yeah. complete destruction of humanity, the, the end of human culture itself. And he said the real tragedy would be the loss of our collective knowledge, the loss of culture. The lesser tragedy will be the loss of human beings individually. If we can't get the amalgamation of all the ideas that we've created across the span of time in which we've been on the earth, if we can't get that off world and at least preserve it in some way, shape or form, that would be the the tragedy. And look, if there was an extinction event that would wipe out all of humanity, there might be something else that will emerge afterwards. And yes, it may take billions of years, but that differentiated humanoid, whatever that may be, you know, some form of lizard human dinoid or whatever may come after the, the great extinction of humanity, that will have new ideas. It will have big new ideas about the world and how it should function. And I think none of that is good enough, to be honest. It's just obviously the ultimate tragedy if that happens. And you don't even have to, I don't think, to kind of create a hierarchy of what's worse. It's our ideas have gone or it's all the billions of people, mm. at least some of whom everyone listening is likely to care about. It's the ultimate screw up yeah. and we just can't let it happen. It's as simple as that as far as I'm concerned. So there are a lot of good reasons to be having ideas and coming up with these big ideas anyway. Like mm. just go back to science and I think scientific ideas are innately worthwhile even if there had been no technology that had come from Einstein's theory of relativity. It still would have been one of the crowning achievements of humanity that is is worth it, just in the way that a Beethoven symphony is is just objectively worth it, I think, because it is just a statement of what is possible. Big ideas in those categories are worthwhile in their own terms, not for any instrumental terms. I am a bit careful about that because you can just quickly get into this sort of arrogant thing of, oh, we only need big ideas. Don't, don't think that. I think we need all kinds of ideas. But I do think there are some ideas that are really impactful and important and significant in their own right. Beyond the cultural limits, the societal limits, the economic limits of whether we can come up with big ideas, are there just 
biological limits. There was a wonderful word that I learned in your book called a mysterian. Beyond a wonderful name for a Doctor Who villain, what, what is a mysterian and what does that really tell us about the limitations of human knowledge? Mysterians are, yeah, it's a slightly ridiculous term for... <laughs> That's a great term. For the philosophical position that there are hard limits to what the human brain can think and know and understand. Uh -huh. To me, I buy that, actually. I, I really buy that. You know, essentially, we're all just walking around with this little squishy thing in our heads that evolved on the savannah X number of million years ago. Mm. There are major, major limitations to human cognition. Even on some measures, we're, we're not as sort of efficient a brains as chimpanzees. We have incredibly bad senses. Most animals have this extraordinary sense of smell and this, this incredibly rich picture of the world. We don't. We can't remember very much. If you look at human memory, it's a few gigabytes of memory over a lifetime. Mm. We have awesome parallel processing capacity. But in many dimensions, our brains are less powerful than a computer. Of course, there are limits to what we can understand. Like Richard Feynman said about quantum mechanics, nobody understands it, he said. But actually, in so many different areas, perhaps that's where we're getting to. You know, In so many areas of science, people have models of what's going on, but they don't necessarily really understand the operation in toto of, say, the human immune system. The further you go in any field, the more likely I think it is that we, we hit these levels. Now, this is quite a controversial position. Some people say, no, what you have with human intelligence is a kind of general intelligence system. And in theory, a general intelligence system should be able to understand everything and anything. I think that is just not the case, to be honest. And if we've got to the point where we can only understand radical simplifications of things where a computer has essentially simplified things down, perhaps we're not getting it. If there are limits to what can be known and understood, we're heading towards them. If there are limits in the universe, in what can be done, in how fast we can travel, say, or in how much computation can be achieved, we head towards those limits as well. So we're always getting closer to the limits of the possible. And again, that just adds something to this idea of the, the idea paradox. It's always getting harder the further you go. Well, in that case, Michael, do you think the next big idea won't come from a human being, but it will come from a non-human? It will come from artificial intelligence. It will be an A. Einstein rather than a future Einstein creating the next big idea. Honestly, I think that is not only likely, I think it's probably already happened in the last few years. Just from DeepMind, a company I've done consulting with, have famously beaten the world's best player at Go, but I think even much more significantly than that, their programs have solved the protein-solving problem, which is pretty much the biggest challenge in biology over the last 50 years that they had no idea when it would ever be solved but it, it pretty much has been solved and it has been solved by very powerful machine learning capabilities already we are seeing that the only way we make big progress at the frontier of knowledge is through ai and that's true whether you're trying to build a fusion reactor it's true whether you're building a new material whether you're trying to do synthetic biology Essentially now, AI is already like the telescope, the calculus of our time. 
And what's fascinating is that as it gets more powerful and it gets more autonomy, it could even start developing its own theses and following up. And we're already seeing the first signs of that kind of thing. For me, it's sort of unquestioned that AI is already pushing back the frontier. If we are going to have a new generation of big ideas, one, they will rest very heavily on tools like AI. And it is really quite plausible that they may from beginning to end, essentially be AI ideas. Well, as you highlight in the book, nothing ages faster than predictions about the future, but let's engage in a little bit of those arrow flight projections that even though they might be interrupted by reality, this is the Futures Podcast, and you so beautifully outlined some wonderful ideas in the end of the book. So what are some of the big ideas, science fiction or otherwise, that you think might be around the corner? Well, I guess I'll I'll just talk about the ideas that I, I hope around the corner. Um, I hope that we can come to some kind of new political settlement that is better than what we have now. Mm -hmm. I think that if we have reached a point where either you've got a sort of slightly failing liberal democracy or a definitely not very nice authoritarian state, that those are the kind of two options we've got now. Surely there has to be a better way of organizing ourselves so that there's sort of maximum flourishing, maximum wealth for everyone. Those kind of political economy ideas, I'd be really interested for economists, political scientists to actually come up with a very concrete program for how we can create something better than there is now. Mm. But, you know, if you're an economist working at a university and you start saying, right, well, my project is to come up with a better economic system than the present one, you know, (laughs) as like a PhD student, you'd pretty much get shot to pieces for that. (laughs) I think we really, really need a whole suite of ideas about how to adapt to and stop climate change. And actually, there are a lot of ideas out there, but it's how they can actually be implemented. That is the really, really big one. I'd be really interested to see how we can create a new set of ideas around the emerging kind of biotech that's out there. I think AI is talked about so, so, so much. We need to talk about biotechnology way more because its impact, to my mind, is equally as significant. And there's a whole load of applications that could be really, really incredible. For the past 200 years, we've essentially been living off the after effects of what happens when engineering and physics are brought together. You know, everything from the first industrial revolution to advanced digital technology is a kind of merging of physics principles and engineering know-how. Now we're getting to the point where you're seeing engineering and biology. The scale of that could be huge. And I think there's so much thinking there that, that could be done. I am of the belief that going into space is really, really important. Mm. I really think that stuff like von Neumann probes, if we can do that, that would be a galactically significant thing to do. So why not? I think perhaps the ideas that I'd, I'd most like to kind of see happen is to work out a total stack of explanations that describes the world and really answers those remaining lacunae. Where did life come from? What actually is consciousness and can it be replicated? Is the multiverse real? If it is real, what does that mean? How do the principles behind it, how could they be used technologically? You know, generally what happens with technology is you find a principle in the natural world and you learn how to exploit it. 
for hopefully beneficial ends. <laughs> if we could decode the multiverse, would there be a way of having principles that we could use technologically speaking? So essentially, right now, we're at this point where either the pressures of stagnation are just going to stop accumulating and we are going to grind to a halt, or we could just be on the absolute first little waves of an exponential uptick that really could see a sort of scale of thinking and understanding and activity that is is just totally unprecedented. And honestly, the crazy thing is that it, it could truly go either way, and it's probably going to become clear which way it's going in the next 20 years. Well, on that somewhat hopeful note, Michael Baskar, thank you for being a guest on the Futures Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Luke. It's great to be here. Thank you to Michael for revealing how big ideas underpin our civilization. You can find out more by purchasing his new book, Human Frontiers, The Future of Big Ideas in the Age of Small Thinking, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.